Welcome to the Postcast, featuring three-time champion and one of the original 3ND guys, James Posey. I'll be your host, Jameson Welsh. This week, we are joined by two-time NBA champion, 10-time NBA All-Star, and one of the best shooters ever in the NBA's history, Ray Allen. Ray, how's your day going thus far? Going great. Uh, very, very uh, relaxing. Got a little round of golf in early this morning, so very, very stress-free day. What up, Ray? What up, Pose? What y'all say? Jesus, baby. Jesus, shut up, baby. <laughs> Three-time champ. Three-time champ. Got me hey. drunk by, two, by one. <laughs> but, hey, listen, I was happy to get that one with you, though. Shit, I yes, know sir. that for sure. You yes, know, you know, couldn't have done it without it, you. Hey, you know, I couldn't have done it without you. That's a great feeling. People don't understand. Yeah. You want to chill. That's, yeah. that, that goes a long way. It's a different feeling, and it's, it's a different respect on your name, too. Yeah. Yeah. So listen, how do you fall in love with the game of basketball? Um, I, I remember I was 10 years old and uh, I was living in California at the time. And there was this girl that uh, I had a crush on. And um, I just knew she was a basketball player and I just saw her every day. I never said anything to her. You know, never. She had no idea that I liked her. Nothing. Uh, but I, I, drummed up this harebrained idea that, you know, maybe if I was good at basketball, then she would look at me, she'd stare at me, she'd pay attention to me. And that was it. That's how it started. Like, I never talked to the girl. I never said a word to her, but it was my way of of trying to um, gain her attention. And, um, you know, the rest is history. So you gained her attention, huh? I, I, I would say that I probably missed on gaining her attention. Uh, but then by, by, by that time, you know, you're, you're good at basketball and you fall in love with something else, you know. So, uh, you know, it's always a um, – it's a scenario where, you know, we always talk about, like, you know, uh, idle mind is a devil's playground. So the fact that I did have basketball, the fact that, you know, that is what kept my attention, you know, it was able to, to give me that, that – that character chase for most of my life. And, you know, that's, it's been a, a godsend. So whether you got her attention or not, I mean, you got the attention of, you know what I'm saying? The, the basketball heads around your way growing up through high school. And then you landed a scholarship to go to UConn. How did you end up at UConn and what were your other options? Uh, well, I was, my dad was in the air force. So I traveled around uh, the world and, you know, my, I went to high school in South Carolina. And the uh, the narrative around there was that kids don't get out of South Carolina. Kids don't uh, do anything with their lives. You know, that's kind of what they kind of told you because it was you just didn't see too many guys that went to uh, to D1 programs, you know, on scholarships out of there. And I, I didn't let that uh, be a, uh, a discouragement. I believe that I'll end up where I, I deserve to end, end up based on how much work. Uh, I put on a daily basis. So, you know, I, I was, it was interesting because we had an AAU team in South Carolina and I played on and we weren't that good at all. And we played in a tournament in, at, in Winston-Salem. Uh, we played in a tournament in Jacksonville and we got waxed, you know, but you're playing against, you know, team from New York, you know, team from Massachusetts, mm-hmm. teams from New Jersey. You know, I still remember some of the guys that I played against, you know, played in the NBA, you know, so like you, you have this this history, this long history of the players you, that you played against uh, ended up seeing them professionally. 
And so the tournament I played in in Jacksonville was the, the very first time that UConn saw me. Mm. You know, Coach Dickerman, he always tells a story that he put – he saw me in a roster and he put a P by my name as having potential. And so that was the start of them seeing me, you know, recruiting me. And I knew nothing about Connecticut. Ironically, at the time, since I was in South Carolina, I wanted to go to Clemson. And Clemson in 1989 played against UConn in the NCAA tournament. And uh, UConn hit – Tate George hit a shot over Clemson to send Clemson home. And I was so heated then. I was like, Connecticut, you know, screw Connecticut. Uh, so everything was against me going to Connecticut. But uh, just, I think, great recruiting, you know, coming up to, to Connecticut and um, really falling in love with the school and, and the players that were on the team at the time. And, and you know, Coach Calhoun then, and of all the coaches that were recruiting me, he was the one coach that wasn't shoveling any, any BS. You know, he, he wasn't telling me he was going to get me to the NBA. He wasn't telling me that he was going to make me a star. He was telling me that, you know, if I work hard, if I'm willing to earn it, then, you know, I can have the things that I want. Uh, success-wise in my life. And, you know, that's that's a fair shake. Because I even knew as a 17-year-old kid, like, you know, you can't do it for me. I have to do it for myself. Right. Now, Ray, who was the person who taught you how to shoot that sweet, sweet shooting stroke? Who's the one who taught you that? Or who's the one who influenced that early on? Uh, my dad and my brother, we used to always go to the gym, the base gym, uh, military, we we would play every Saturday and Sunday mornings. And, you know, I'm playing against my dad's friends. I'm 12, 13 years old starting off. And so my dad, he can shoot left hand, right hand, and with both hands. Um, as we say in the league, he was amphibious. Um, so he, he just he – could, he, could, he could play. He ran. You know, my brother could shoot. And I was just the kid that was kind of tagging along, and I was, you know, of similar size to them. So – I, I just was watching, you know, paying attention. My mom played growing up. So just being in the gym, it just kind of through osmosis, it, it kind of seeped into my my DNA. And, and you know, I had kids that were, were tough when I was growing up in middle school and high school. And we just always played. Now, where did the regiment come in? Because it's well known that you'd get to the gym very early before a game, sometimes four hours, five hours before the actual game, and get your shots in. Where did that come about? How did that come about? Well, it was my, it was my, my first year in the NBA, and I remember I, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know what to do in this game. I would go out to court before the games and just mess around. In college, the coaches organize everything. There's a time when you got to be on the floor, what you're wearing when you first go on the floor. When you come back out, you come back out to stretch. Then you got to go back in for the meeting. It's, it's, it's so systematic and, you know, based on what the coach wants you or needs you to do. Uh, I got to the NBA and I was just like all over the map. I'd be out on the floor shooting hook shots. And, you know, I didn't understand what being prepared was, what being a professional was. And so, uh, Chris Ford, my coach at the time, he said, he brought me in. He said, he was like, rookie, you, you, you don't have any routine whatsoever. And you need to start to develop a routine. And that was the first time I started thinking about it. And, you know, two of my, my, uh, uh, my vets that kind of, you know, pulled me on their wing and, and helped hone my skills 
from a preparation standpoint were Mike Curry and, and Elliot Perry. You know, my, my second year, we started, the three of us, we would get up every morning, we'd have breakfast, we'd switch, one person would pay the bill one day to the next. And then we'd leave early, we'd catch a cab, and we'd go over to the arena, and then we would, you know, we, we, we had a shooting routine where we rotated between the, the, the three of us. And it taught me a lesson early that, you know, your teammates, you have to really rely on them in the NBA. You have to really trust in them. And, you know, you, you, you have to develop a partnership or a kinship with another teammate so that you can help. Because there are times where when, when those two guys left me, I'd be in either Milwaukee, Seattle, Boston, I pretty much had a rhythm and a routine and a coach. But Seattle and later on in Milwaukee, I was out there a lot of times on my own. I didn't know how to ask a coach uh, because I was going so early and I didn't want to disrupt anybody else's routine. So you, you realize that the more you can ask for help and the more you lean on other people, uh, the more you get help and the more you can help other people. Gotcha. Now, we always hear about guys saying, hey, I need 500 makes a day or 1,000 makes a day. For one of the guys on the Mount Rushmore shooting, what is the preferred number of makes per day or makes per workout? I'll tell you that shooting 500 plus shots is not necessarily uh, ever have been, it's never been a goal of mine. I, I don't necessarily believe in shooting that many shots. I don't think that you could shoot 500 really quality game shots. It's important more to shoot a rhythm shot, a shot that you shoot in the gym or in a, in a fourth quarter situation. Uh, I'll give you an example. A free throw is in a very emotional shot. You know, you, anytime you go to the free throw line, you've either been knocked down, hit in the face, fouled hard, whatever it may be. And so when you go to the free throw line, you're sweating hard, like your heart is racing. So you have to train, you know, by yourself in practice with that same emotion, because otherwise, how do you duplicate what may happen to you at the end of a game? If you can't duplicate that, then you won't be ready or prepared to shoot free throws in the game. And you, that's why you see guys who are sub 60% from the free throw line because they don't know how to put themselves in those, those situations, you know, on their own time. And so the same goes for shooting regular shots. Like you're not, I would never walk into a gym and shoot a shot where I don't jump, where I don't exhaust my, my athletic ability because that's what I'm going to have to do in a game. And I don't want to ever change my release point because then I'll have to guess. And I'm, you know, many times I've been good enough early on to guess what a release point is, but I don't want to have to guess. I want to be spot on. I want to know exactly where that ball is going to leave my fingers at every time. So at UConn, being in the Big East, you know, you have some, well, I say rivalries, but you have some straight good competition. Uh, one being, you know, against one of the great teams in, in Georgetown. And being coach, you know, Georgetown being coached by iconic uh, coach uh, John Thompson, and we just lost him recently. Uh, could you tell us about, you know, those sort of matchups? And then, you know, Iverson as well. You know, he was there during that time and then carrying that on to, to the NBA. Well, it was, it was, it was interesting because when I was in high school, I remember watching, it was Othello Harrington's freshman year at Georgetown, and they looked like they were like, uh, uh, a force to, to be reckoned with. When I signed to go to UConn, one of the reasons I signed uh, to Connecticut was because I wanted to to get into the Big East. I wanted to play in every major city. 
that seemed like the, the best basketball, you know, coming from the East Coast where, you know, you've seen the best talent. Uh, the history of the Big East with the great players is, uh, you know, really uh, incomparable to to any basketball in the Big East tournament. So it was just – it was so crazy to me. My first Big East game was against uh, Seton Hall, and I think they just went to the Final Four in 1990. So they had, uh, like, uh, 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 Arturis Karnishevis. Uh, they had uh, – um, Oh, shit, I, I, I'm drawing a blank on his name, but he played in the league. Uh, I, I can remember his face. Uh, uh, but they, they had so many great players that I watched. A, Adrian, um, I can't remember his last name, uh, but he played with the with the Bulls. He's coaching in the league still. Um, but they just had so many, you know, great players at Seton Hall that I watched. And so it was it was crazy. We, our first game was at, at, at uh, the Meadowlands. And as a young person, just being in this environment, I couldn't believe it. You know, so I, I had some nerves, you know, going to the game. Um, but that's how the whole Big East was. When you go down the list of teams and, you know, so interesting playing in, in, uh, at the Conte Forum and uh, at Boston College. You know, we were playing in Philly for Villa, against Villanova and playing in the Garden so much against St. John's. And then at the time, it was the Landover center in in, uh, in Maryland against Georgetown. And, you know, one of the, the, the scariest things for me was Georgetown had all the athletes. You know, Iverson, you know, they had Victor Page later on. They had Jerome Williams. They had Don Reed, Othella Harrington. They just had a lot of big guys that were athletic. And, you know, John Thompson, uh, God rest his soul, he – I remember seeing him for the first time, just I didn't realize he was as big as he was. I didn't know the history of John Thompson, you know, right. 6'10", you know, his, <laughs> his career, like you, you just, you're as a kid, you're starting to learn the history of the game. And, you know, these people that come before you, you know, they're teaching you the game, but they also play the game as well. And he always used to keep that towel over his shoulder. And it was just like everything that I had seen growing up as a kid, I'm looking at it live and in person now. But I had to be focused. I had to pay attention. And it was just so unreal to know that it was now my turn and I was in this place, in this space, to to leave an impact on the kids that were around me watching. And uh, it certainly was probably one of my greatest, the greatest times of my life because you learn so much. You know, I only went to college for three years. And I was in the NBA for 18. But the three years is so much more impactful than the years of me playing in the NBA because I'm truly learning who I am as a person and as a player uh, in those three three years at Connecticut. So at, at, at uh, UConn, you go and you do your thing at UConn. Now, tell me about this, this 96 class, this draft class. Where did you really see yourself going and what did you think about that class and how does it you know stack up to the rest of these classes out here? Well, it was it was ninety it was ninety six, and we had an awards banquet in L.A. And it was a Player of the Year award banquet awards banquet, and Carrie uh, Kittles was there, and and AI was there, and um, I just remember just being around these guys. We'd be sitting around the hotel, and we'd just be talking. Like we had no idea the the journey that we would go on from this this moment. Uh, as as being young kids with nothing, 
And it, it was never about money. It was never about the fame. We just loved playing the game. It was like competition, like playing in the Big East, like being the best. Those guys worked hard. I worked hard. We competed against each other as much as we could when we played on the floor. And my first game in the NBA was against the Sixers. And, and I remember, like, dapping AI. I said, here we go again. And, <laughs> and that, was, that was 1996. It was my first NBA game, uh, my first official NBA game. And those moments, you know, they seem like they're yesterday. But they allowed us to, to compete at the, 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 the highest level that we possibly can compete at. And still, as young people, still make mistakes and learn the game. And, you know, it's just amazing looking back and, and seeing kind of the, the trajectories of our careers. Now, Ray, you're one of the original Jordan brand members. How did that come about? Because at the time, that was kind of like an unknown thing. It was a very new thing. And you're one of the godfathers of brand Jordan, Team Jordan, I should say. How did that come about? Well, um, it was it was my my junior year. I was leaving, and I was trying to decide between Fila and Nike, and Reebok was in there a little bit, uh, and. I just had these deals on the table and Nike was telling me if you're, if you're, if you come with us, you know, there's potentially going to be a new brand started that we may potentially put you in to start you, you know, in, in your rookie year. And the deal kind of went away. And my agent at the time was pushing me towards Fila. And it was, it was weird because I was sensing this, you know, there was some other things going on. There was like this side deal happening. And I remember going to this firm in DC and, and, and the people at Fila, you know, they pushed this check across the table as if I had agreed to the deal. And in my rookie year, they wanted, they, want, they were going to give me a shoe, but they wanted me to, it was going to be a five-year deal. But the first three years, I had to be the leading, the first or second leading scorer or, excuse me, leading rebounder or leader in, in assists on the team. And I had Vin Baker and Glenn Robinson on, on the team. Then I was like, I, who's the – how do I – how am I going to come in as a rookie and, and, and be one of the leaders in this categories and then stake my, my future on it with this shoe company? This, these, these criteria, I, I felt like it was too much pressure to have to deal with. Like I'm not, you know, lacking confidence in my skill. And – and so I went to this meeting, they handed me this check as a, an agreement that, you know, that I have with these terms and I don't. So I told them, and, you know, later on I said, I'm not accepting these terms. And, you know, listen, I'm, I'm, I ended up firing my agent. And then we went back to Nike to rehash the deal. And the deal was on the table. And then, sure enough, within that year, the first brand Jordan shoe, it was a Jumpman Pro. It was a black and white shoe. And I wore that my rookie year. And um, from then, you know, the rest is history. I was able – and the funny thing is, is I had never even met Michael Jordan. And uh, my, my rookie – you know, the, my second game of my rookie year preseason, we played against the Bulls in the United Center. So imagine that as a 21-year-old kid, you're playing against MJ. You know, you know I was <laughs> right. scared to death, you know, in the United Center. <laughs> like, you imagine hearing that 
hearing that theme song when they run out on the floor and and and, and mm-hmm. people were there ready and waiting and watching the game. It was already packed. <laughs> and I'm on the floor stretching, and he runs out on the floor, and I had to look. Like I had to look up because right? I was like, it was like this is so surreal to me that I'm sitting here on this court right now, and I've watched this, you know, for the last ten years of my life, you know. So now I'm here. I was like, I'm rooting for him against me. You know? <laughs> right. I know that feeling. I yeah. know that feeling too. It's yeah. great that you say that because I caught him towards the tail end of my career when he was in and when he was in uh in Washington. And I mean I take pride in my defense and being competitive, but for the first time I was happy that MJ gave me buckets. Like it was crazy. Like he yeah. almost found me out, but he gave me buckets and I was like all right, it's cool. I take it from yeah, him. Yeah, you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. At the end of the game, I'm like, man, I ain't, I don't know if he'd do it, but I asked him to sign his game shoes for me. And you know, I just put it out there. I'm sure he probably got that every game. Yo, sign some shoes for me or whatever. And so nothing of it. I'm in the locker room changing and everything. Then he sent the ball boy over there with the box and his shoes, autographed and everything. And I was surprised. I was like, man. So that night, you know, like I said, I was, I was team. MJ, like I always am, but for that moment right yeah. there, like I said, I, I was happy that MJ gave me buckets. <laughs> and see, I think you know the the legend of of who MJ is. Uh, you see it around, you know, around pop culture. You know, and Biggie said it. He said, "You're nobody till somebody kills you." Like you're 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 more f- famous after you pass away. And the fact that he's still living, he's a legend uh, of ours. Um, we we take for granted, you know, just his presence still on earth, you know, for everything that he's been able to um, to pass along to us, you know, especially our generation. Um, and the, the thing that I always, you know, as a kid, kid playing in the NBA, I used to always say, I used to always think, what would MJ do in this situation? Because I always admired how he handled the media. I admired how he dressed. I admired how he carried himself on the court. Like he was a staunch competitor. He was a trash talker, but he was also a gentleman when he was out there. You know, when he walked off the court, he engaged with everybody he could and people loved him. And and I think there's a semblance of that that is missing. You know, when you see a lot of us today, you see a lot of the players, you know, move through the atmosphere. You see there's a, like a, a, a negative you know, air about, you know, certain individuals, especially the ones that are, um, that are sought after and, and, and looked upon by the young people and older like, I, I will say that LeBron has, has that same energy, uh, when he moves through, uh, the world, the space he's in because people, you know, really enjoy seeing him and, and his, his, uh, his rapport with people has always been great. Like I, I've always appreciated how, he he doesn't hold his his status in front of people when he moves through. If we're walking through the mall, like he'll laugh and joke with people and have a good time. And you know that to me is when you when you get out of the game, you realize you know what that's I I can do more of that. You know I can right. be more. You know the game has a way of kind of you know like shutting you down because we're so uh, coddled and 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 kind of closed in and. It, you have to get used to getting kind of back out again and, and, and being open and not feeling so paranoid about people. Mm-hmm. Now, since you're on Jordan brand, a lot of people, a lot of the casual people don't understand. Can you explain the experience of getting all those damn shoes every release and every month? 
or whatever you want to because a lot of casual listeners they kind of have an idea but they don't really know can you ex- explain what a delivery is for a guy like yourself um yeah so i have i have maybe like <laughs> i was i was looking in my foyer because i had uh i had about two boxes uh they came um yes yesterday and there's about you know, it's, there's about 10, 12 pairs of shoes, you know, uh, in the boxes. And, and for me right now, the, I take all the running shoes out, obviously, because I go to the gym, you run on the street. So I take all those out. And the other ones, you know, a lot of Air Force Ones, uh, a lot of retros, different colors. Uh, it's it's like Christmas. That's why I always tell people, don't give me anything. Uh, because every time I open up a box, I, I have that, that – uh, that excitement, that, that euphoria, you know, as if I was a kid, you know, seeing what I have now, what, what's new, what's the latest and the greatest. And, uh, you know, being, you know, at my age now, I, I don't want to lose that. You know, I want to lose that, you know, it's great to still be an ambassador to the brand and, you know, to the league, but I don't ever want to get old to the point where I lose, you know, my enthusiasm for this sport that I've played my whole life and, uh, been able to share, you know, my, my ups and downs with, you know, my thrills, you know, my hard times and no point do you ever look at a pair of tennis shoes and say, oh, I was just a pair of tennis shoes. No, this is the cornerstone of our livelihood. And so I hope to continue to always be, you know, a sneakerhead and represent the culture because, you know, it, the time that we spent in the league, we helped grow it. Nice, nice. Now, what is your most exclusive shoe that you have from Jordan Brand? And what is your favorite Jordan of all time? Uh, my my most exclusive exclusive shoe is probably the I call them my uh, ring ceremony elevens. Uh, uh, I have a pair of golden green and then gold red. Um, and people hit me up all the time and you know ask to sell them to them and they'll pay a lot of money for these, these particular shoes. And uh, I also have, I was fortunate because a couple of years ago uh, we had a meeting in, in, in uh, Mexico and Cabo and uh, the, the Jordan brand offered a couple of the older players that had been around forever uh, an exclusive line of shoes, one through 30 the color of your ch- our choice. So I have from one through thirty, I have uh, every Jordan, uh, and I did, I did in green and white, uh, with a little. Some of them have a little gold in them, uh, but one through thirty in green and white to to kind of symbolize uh, winning my first championship in Boston. Um, so you know, I've I posted them uh, maybe once on Instagram, but to me, that's one of my uh, part of a special collection for me uh, that that I cherish. My favorite, my favorite Jordan of all time is the the fire red fours. Okay, hmm. we don't hear that every day. That's a good one. That's a good yeah. one. Yeah. So earlier you talked about you know doing your shoe deal, uh, you end up firing your agent. And whether it was just that shoe deal or whatever, but in Milwaukee, it came down to you, you know, negotiating your, your deal and you didn't have an agent. What was that process like? And, and what made you not have an agent 
and just represent yourself in your next deal, you know what I'm saying, in the NBA, because that was, that was unheard of. Yeah, so my agent, when I first, the guy that I signed with, when I first uh, I get drafted and I'm, I'm kind of going through the whole process, he, he just, I just had this sneaky suspicion that he didn't believe in me. You know, just the things that he would say. Like, if you're lucky, you know, think about that. <laughs> if anybody if anybody comes up to you and says, if you're lucky, he starts to send us off with, if you're lucky. Like, I don't plan on being lucky. You know, I, I want to be good. And that, that's going to take me, you know, being prepared and being focused and doing my job. And um, he, he, he would compare me to other players that he had and would say that, you know, that I, I, I may not be as good as they are. But if, mm. if I'm lucky, just save my money wow. up and, you know, I'll be able to, you know, you know, have a good career. And, and so wow. it was almost it was fascinating because he even said it. And I don't think he he thought, you know, two ways about it, that it, it could have been condescending or disrespectful. Um, it, it was just almost like from a position of of. Uh, of entitlement and arrogance that he would say these things to me as if I'm lucky to be in this situation. You know, we're lucky to be able to have this opportunity. And I didn't look at my life up to that point as luck, you know, because I knew what it took for me to get to where I was, you know, and it was, it was deliberate. And, and I think that's the conversation that, uh, that we have to have, far too often in, in American in, in sports, like this is, you know, yeah, you know, this is that uh, avenue for young black men to be successful, but we, we can do anything that we set our minds to, you know, I think the, 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 the greatest, um, I think negative in our situations is, is having opportunity, you know, being put in situations where you're given the opportunity to be able to, to succeed, to be, to be able to be taught uh, because most, if you look at, any player in the NBA, basketball, completely, incredibly uh, smart and basketball savvy. Now, whatever these guys will do, they'll be successful at because the one common denominator is com competitiveness. So that's why we make it to this level because we're willing to do whatever it takes to get to that level. We'll find a way. And that's what you find out about business, about life, about anything is – you just got to figure out how to do the work. And if you're not lazy and you're willing to sacrifice, you'll be successful at whatever it is that you do. And I think as a young person, we need more people like that in our lives that kind of push us forward and not just athletes, you know, everybody. And I think that goes back to, you know, the access to opportunities and jobs and after school programs in underserved communities, because if kids just have somebody that believes in them, and pushes them in those directions and encourages them instead of telling him if you're lucky or, you know, you, you, you can't be this, so be that, you know, wow. don't tell me to be my second, you know, best uh, person. Tell me to be my, my best person. I want to be the best person I could possibly be because even striving to be my second best person, I can fail at doing that. So cool. give me, give me everything. You know, I want to, I want to, you know, shoot for the moon. And I think that's what the, the message that we got to impress upon, you know, everybody, because we've been to the mountaintop. What you realize when you get there is this doesn't define who you are. 
You know, you think about the championships you played played in, the players you played with, the money you made. You've done all that, but at the end of the day, when you win a championship, you go home. You know, you don't get it. Yeah, it's a, it, it feels great and rewarding, but there's you know the next year starts in two months. You know, it, it's 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 a feeling that's very it's fleeting and people chase it so much and then when you don't if you were this all you're chasing you don't learn anything in the process you become a champion during the process not because you won that last game so if you if you're if you're looking for happiness on that day you won a championship and you don't find it then you're going to be lost forever so my question for you knowing that this is all-time great shooter i say shooter versus versus a dunker now you had some bodies, Ray. Yeah. People don't know that they they know you're shooting the yeah, ball, having a wet jump shot, but you was getting bodies. Mm-hmm. What's your comparison, and, and what what gave you the best feeling? I guess, or was it just a moment? Sometimes. Uh, you know, I I always it was interesting because you, when you look at players in the league, football is more like this because you fall into a system and you have to form to that system like you could come in football as a running back and then they put you in a safety position and you could become a all pro safety and in the nba your talent your skill set really is determined by the team that you go to and what what need that you have to fill until you learn the system the game and then you kind of start to develop when i got to milwaukee i didn't really have they weren't putting me in pick and rolls and i was just a, a floor spacer so I didn't know how to play the game. So I'm just standing out there just shooting and they're like, just shoot when you get the ball. Don't do anything else. And, you know, so I think one of the best things that happened to me in in my career early, you know, when you say you want more opportunity, you want to be able to shine, you want, want more playing time. You always find out those guys that say they want more when somebody gets hurt and they can't hack it because one, they're not in shape. And two, you're taking shots now because you're you you might have been getting seven or eight shots a game. Now you're getting fifteen, and now you're taking fifteen right. bad shots because you're getting too much. <laughs> so, one of the best things that happened to me was when uh, Ben Baker was traded my second year, because now it's 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 myself and Glenn Robinson. So now I'm I go from averaging thirteen points a game to nineteen or twenty in my second year because I'm getting the ball more and we're running the floor more. So I had an opportunity to open up more and play in the open system uh, my second year. And it, it was, it, as a young person, it's like that's what you want in an organization. When you have young players, you got to let them play. You know, my, my rookie year, I, was, I had Johnny Newman and I had uh, Ricky Pierce that were playing behind me. And uh, Chris Ford was a – yeah, Chris Ford was a, a veteran's coach. He didn't like rookies. And so any little mistake I made, he would put news in or he would put uh, uh, Ricky in. And, and I just remember, you know, they're like, this guy's the fifth pick. Like, he's got to play. But Chris Ford, he played – he knew what Ricky Pierce and Johnny Newman could do because he played in the, in the league. I'm sure they played against each other. Mm-hmm. So so you you find out about the about the league that, the more reps you get, the more points ultimately you will score. So you got to stay available and you got to learn how to practice. You got to learn how to prepare and you got to learn how to rest. Gotcha. Nice. Now you were part of the great 1996 NBA draft class. 
a lot of people say that's the best ever. There's also the 03 class and also the 84 class. Where do you rank your class amongst those others? Uh, I, I really don't. I don't really rank because I, I don't even know. It's one of those things, and I heard Kobe say this, uh, God rest his soul, how when you compare yourself to someone, like it's hard to say that you're better than someone because that person that you watched growing up helped you get to where you are. So you almost would be like biting the hand that fed you uh, in, in some aspect. So when I look at the 84 draft class, I'm like, these are the guys that I grew up on watching the dream team. Like it's, it's strictly you get from one draft class, one generation of player to the next, but you can only get to the next one without that, that prior class or that previous great class. You know, so when 03 comes along, like a lot of these guys are influenced by 96, you know, and even, you know, classes in between. So I would never try to say or compare like which one is better because it's hard to really figure out what comparison you would be making. You know, it's great to see in my draft class when I look at it, you know, I, I think about uh, the guys I played against a lot of them in college, you know, and I think about, you know, it was great to see the guys have the impact. That, that they had uh, in the league for, for such a long time. Um, but it, it's just an honor to be able to be in the conversation. Uh, but I just urge people, don't do us any favors by saying that 96 is the best draft class because I, I can't discount 84 at all because them, those guys, you know, people look at it, you know, very objectively. Uh, because they're seeing and they're get they're kind of picking and choosing between players, but I just respect the 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 lineage of you know NBA players where we've come from and how we've evolved and, and how the game's changed, and, and I just think that we need to respect that more than just trying to. It's like we're trying to compare because people play different players on on two K. You know, you're able to now use you know inject some older players into the game. And so that question always emerges, you know, how would this person be on that team? And it's pu purely hypothetical, but, you know, just from the sake of a, a player perspective, it's like, man, I love to see this guy in this generation, but, you know, just to pay respect, never to compare because it just, it does a dishonor or a disservice to each player because everybody's good in their own right in their own generation. Got you. Now you did mention Kobe Bryant and you guys played the same position for basically 18 years. Uh, he played for 20, he played for 18. Uh, you guys played for two championships, and you also played in the West for a while. Uh, what were those battles like? We did not like each other. You know, Kobe and I, we always went at each other every chance we got. And it was – I appreciate it. Like, Kobe, I knew every time I shot the ball over him, he was going to come back down the floor and he was going to shoot. It was always – you know, it was back and forth between uh, he and I. Um, I. It was unfortunate for me because I really wanted to be better in Seattle. I wanted to compete uh, for championships in Seattle. Uh, the city deserves it. Uh, there's a great fan base there. Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, putting resources behind that team while we were there because we were young. But it didn't stop me from getting buckets. And it was almost like, for me, it was like a, a, second, uh, a second stint in college because I had so many young players with me. 
And, you know, I had such a great time playing. I had a great time in the city. And we kind of went on the radar. You know, one year we made it to the, to the second round against San Antonio. Uh, we played them in the game six. And it just was – it was a great time. And we surprised a lot of people, you know, that, that year. In, uh, I think it was in 2006. And it, it was – you just have to say it, it, it's almost what propelled me and it prepared me for what I was to, to expect or face when I got to, to Boston. It was like I was apprenticing. And, you know, ironically, I, I'm in 2008 now playing against Kobe in the NBA championship. So, you know, all of those battles kind of prepared me for what was to come later on. You talk about that, uh, that Sonics team, you know, uh, being a vet at that time too. You played on there with uh, Rashard Lewis, right? Yeah. And he was, you know, he came right out of high school. How was that ex experience and what, how did you help him grow at the time? Well, it was fascinating. Uh, when I got to uh, Seattle, so the way the trade went down, we were, I was in Milwaukee playing for the Bucks, and we were, we flew to Seattle and then we had a practice that day. And it was coming along uh, trade deadline and everybody was talking about Tim Thomas being traded. Mm -hmm. So we were on key arena floor in Seattle and the media comes rushing in and I'm sitting on the floor stretching and I'm over here looking and I, I turn behind me and I'm like, the lights come on and I'm like, man, what's happening? We're about to have practice. And then I turn around. I'm like, I'm like, what's going on? And they're looking, they're pointing at me like this. And I'm like me, and they're like, yeah, you. And, Damn. like, I'm, I'm at the end of the floor. I don't know if you remember the arena. But when you come down the, the tunnel on the, on the bus, you walk on the court. And then the arena, we're on that side where gotcha. the bus is. And so the team, we're stretching in another team down there. And George Carl is down there on that end. And I kind of look around, and I'm looking up, and then he takes off. And I walk over to the media. And I said, what's going on? And they're like, there was a trade. I said, who got traded? And they're like, you. And then I go into the, to the locker room, and I check my phone, and it's blowing up. You know, the trade went down. I got traded for Gary Payton. And so it was, it was crazy to be traded to Seattle then. And so, so in the middle of the season, what you have to remember is, so now, like, I got – Take my I go back, take my physical, get my stuff, and then fly back again. And my first game is against uh, the Detroit Pistons. And I remember going out to lunch with Brent Berry. And Brent tells me, he goes, he goes, Ray. And he was so great the whole time because he was such a he, – he was like a little jokester, like on, on the slide. He always had this little sarcasm that he'd add to any situation. And he goes, just so you know, uh, people aren't coming in here to watch you to get watch the game to see you. They're coming to see the the, the Barry brothers match up because because uh, <laughs> John was on the team in, against Detroit, right. and so that was always Brent his his dry humor and you know just the little things that he would do. So I'm watching the film, and Gary basically like he was the defender, the glove, and everybody knew how how. Uh, ferocious he was on defense and so like I was used to in Milwaukee like we had schemes we'd be watching the film 
and everything Gary Gary would come from one side of the floor to the other, and he just guard the guy. I'm like, well, what, what scheme is that? They're like, no, that's Gary's scheme. And so <laughs> I noticed how the team was built around him because a lot of young players that they had, they kind of waited for Gary to to do what Gary did. And so when I got there, Richard was just he was young and he was impressionable and. You know, we had guys like Ansu Cisse and, and Reggie Evans and Jerome James. And all these guys were just like, you know, they were young. And they, they just kind of kind of went as Gary went. And so when I got there, I was like, yo, get your shots up. I need you. I was passing the ball. Like, I was averaging, you know, I was flirting with triple doubles every other game. But I was like, you guys got to listen, you know. It was like they just sat around. I could tell the hole that Gary left. These guys were used to playing a certain way and, and kind of expecting him to do everything. And so Richard emerged because he started watching me come to the gym every day and, and early. And he would always say, he's like, man, I, I need to – I, I want to make the money that you make and have the, the success that you've had, and i got to start really focusing in and taking this seriously. So Richard started getting to the gym early. You know, he would come in and I'd be on the floor. He started getting there because he saw the work that I put in. He said, this is something that I could do and this is something I want for myself. And I like to think that, you know, some of that money he got from Orlando, he could have kind of passed that along a little bit, you know, <laughs> yeah. to the side. But, you know, right. it didn't happen. But he, he, was, he, was, a, uh, he was a great uh, partner to have because he did significantly get uh, so much better from the time I got there to the time we parted ways when he went to Orlando and I went to Boston. So I know it doesn't happen, but you know, George, George Carl, he knew about the trade. Did you ever have a conversation with him after that about, you know, regarding the trade? I know it's a business, but has that even come about? No. And, you know, since then he's, George is always, uh, taking shots at me, you know, through the media or, or write books. And it was like, it's just the strangest thing because I always thought that we had a, a good relationship as a player coach, uh, but he always found a way to, to bring, you know, team business into the media, you know, talk about what was happening in practice, you know, and talk about me. And I was like, well, I didn't think anything was wrong until I would talk to the media and they would say that he had a beef with me. And, you know, and I didn't know any better then. It was just like, I, you know, I don't know what, what he'd be pissed off about, but some, some days, you know, I had, you, you, you have injuries. Uh, I practice, I was there every day. Uh, there are some days I'm playing a lot of minutes. You know, I had tendonitis. Uh, I couldn't play knee tendonitis. Sometimes I had plantar fasciitis, like, but for the most part, I was, I was practicing every day. And the times, the very, it was probably two or three times when I didn't practice over the course of the season. And I always heard about it, you know, in the media. And and it was it was kind of disheartening because it, for as much as I gave to him, he never gave me the benefit of the doubt. And he would always use that, you know, and talk about me in the media. And I noticed as he went to uh, to Denver, it was the same MO with Carmelo. It was always what Carmelo couldn't do or what he didn't do as opposed to celebrating his his strengths. That's, that's, that's fucked up. All right. Now, um this new era that we play in now, there's a bunch of three-pointers being shot every game. There's a lot of new young shooters. 
who are some of the young guys that you're looking at that you kind of look at like, okay, I see what, see what they have or guys that you take a liking to that are from a different, from this younger generation? Uh, well, I, I love what Devin Booker uh, did in the bubble, uh, but I always knew that he was, you know, that type of player. Uh, I know a lot has been talked about with him uh, and whatever team he may end up on, but yeah, I think he has in Phoenix, you know, they have a great fan base and opportunity to win as long as the organization is kind of moving in that direction, trying to put a uh, piece around him. Um, I've always said that um, um, Bradley Bill in, in Washington was uh, of my likeness. Uh, he, it's like he's been around for a while, but he's still so young. I think he's only 27 years old, but, you know, his, his, he hasn't even reached his prime yet. So he, he's going to have some great impact, and he'll be somewhere on somebody's team if it's not in Washington. He'll be, you know, helping the team win a championship, you know, in the next, within the next 10 years. Um, it, it's, it, there's so many – there's so many – you see so many guys that come out and shoot and score, and, and now the league is, is kind of rife with shooters because uh, the game has opened up so much more. So I think in the next two or three years, we'll see even more uh, great shooters emerge because the, especially with the volume of shots, uh, threes that, that most players are taking. Now, how many threes would you got up a game in this era? Because in your era, it's a little bit different. The pace was slower. Uh, the offenses were different. People actually ran plays throughout the whole shot clock. In this era, if you got an open three, you take it. How many threes would you have gotten up in this era? And how many more points a game would you have averaged? Well, my my highest scoring average was 26, 27 a game in Seattle. Um, it, it's it's hard to say because I used to pride myself on being able to to put it in from anywhere, and you know the ball finds energy, the ball finds movement. Uh, the more you're in the game, uh, the more opportunities and points you have to score. So it's if you do those numbers math wise, I can shoot threes, I can shoot mid range, you get to the hole, I'm a great free throw shooter. Like the sky's the limit, you know, being able to put the ball on the floor and shoot and, and separate, create your own shot. Like it's 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 hard to say that you can be stopped because if I'm <laughs> shooting yeah, if I'm shooting I only think that I was averaging at one point, you know, towards the end of my career, maybe four or five threes a game, if that many, you know. So I, I like to think that I would average 10 to 12 threes a game, you know, in this era, the way, you know, guys are shooting the ball now, you know, 10 to 12 threes, you know, if you look how Houston plays and, you know, how Golden State plays, like they, they're launching at, at, at large, you know, large rates. So, um, it definitely for Posey myself, you know, definitely, you know, we, and when you think about the money, we came along, we think that we were in the right era, but we, we, you know, we need to be born like 10, 10, 10 years later and then we'd have been good, but it was all good. I blame my parents. They tried to get busy too soon. If they had just held off, maybe, <laughs> hey, maybe, yeah. maybe right yeah. But yeah. hey, Ray, come on. Hey, don't, hey, I appreciate it. Hey, I, my stroke ain't near as nice as yours. It's just so smooth. That's the crazy thing about it, yo. Like when you missed, it was almost like, nah, he man, something wrong with the basket. Cause 
I was like, I, I knew he was a good shooter, but to see you in Boston and practice and then just game up close all the time, like if you miss, I'm like, yeah, something wrong with that basket. We need to check that out. But you, you had a smooth jump shot, man. <laughs> it was, it was but crazy, you, but it was great but to don't, see. But don't, don't underestimate yourself either because I, I remember the first time when I came in the gym early in, in the year and you were out there shooting, and I was impressed because what I saw in you is what I knew was in myself. Because you, you, you were shooting and you were shooting your game shots and you were consistent in your work. And, and that was you every single day. And that was the thing that, that told me that we were going to be okay because I knew where my mind was. And that's why, you know, coaches never worried about me if I had a bad game or, you know, what the circumstances were because by hook or by crook, the next day I was going to be in the gym and I was going to be shooting because this is my job. And you embodied that same spirit in which I knew we can count on you down the stretch. You know, the thing that people don't know you probably the, the most and the best thing about you is your ability to take charges. You know, to be able to get in there and be on the spot, you know, it was like you turn around, you look up, Pose is right there taking the charge. And that right there was something that I didn't have the ability or talent to, to be able to do. I didn't know how to do that. So I always respected and appreciated that about you. But telling you that that, model and that that uh, inspiration it, as much as I push it or put it out there because people see what I'm doing I'm taking it too because you see the time when I get tired when you see people right there doing the same thing you say yeah man I, let me get out here because I see pose and you you were a lot of times when I came in you'd be down on that one side and then I'd come in and I'd get to my side so I always knew I was in the right spot you know and I, I finally found a group of guys that said my chances have gone up to 60% now every night to, to, to win. There was a time where I was at 30%, you know, and, and that's what it takes. And, and that's something I appreciate from you. So don't, I, I, I tell people between you and Eddie house, you know, I was in good company. Man, appreciate the compliment. Appreciate that. Um, <clears throat> what does uh, Jesus Shuttleworth mean to you? Um. Uh, it it reminds me of you know my my I don't know my my playful error you know my playful self uh, the guy that's supposed to go out there and just get buckets you know most people when they look at me like oh he could just shoot but I think Jesus Shuttlesworth reminds me of the guy who can go out there and just put the ball through his legs and get to the hoop you know on anybody uh, and most people don't know me as that. Uh, because if you think about, you know, one of the, we were talking about earlier about when you live long, people recognize you only for what you've done in the last two or three to five year segments, but they kind of forget about the, your, your jump off in the beginning of your career and the, you know, the, the, the body of your career. And so, you know, so I always use an example, like if, if, if Snoop passed away after gin and juice, like it, it would have been like Snoop would have been the best rapper ever, you know, and people still regard him as, as one of the greatest rappers of all times. But Gin and Juice is one of the greatest rap albums to me of all time. And, you know, this is arguable because there's so many albums, but the way that hit when we were younger, right? that's the fact that he's able to still produce, to rap, to collaborate, to do TV, to do, you know, so many different things. He's, he's, he's transcended rap and you know created different personas of who he is and so people now young people only see him who he is now but they don't remember 
like murder was a case, you know, when he was young at the time. And so that's kind of how, you know, Jesus Shuttlesworth reminds me of the body of my work when I, when people knew I could just get buckets, they weren't looking at me like, Oh, he's just a shooter. You know, the fact that I played for 18 years, people saw my last seven and they're like, this guy just shoots and he's one of the best shooters ever. But you know, that's not like how my origins, you know, come about basketball is just basketball. It wasn't my goal, desire or dreams to be a great three point shooter. You just evolve into what the game uh, allows you to do. So, I mean, that, that was your character for people that don't know is from the movie. Uh, he got game uh, with Denzel Washington. So if you have it and don't know about it, you need to check it out. So how did that whole acting come into about with Denzel Washington and, you know, just like I said, the character in itself, but being young, just, you know, sort of fresh into the league. Now you had that opportunity to be on the big screen as well. How did you feel about it? And how did that opportunity uh, present itself? Well, as my, my rookie year, it was April. Season was about to end and I was in New York playing against the Knicks and uh, Allen was killing me, Allen Houston in the game. And, and the first time we played him, he was dragging me. Yeah, Allen, one of the most underrated players uh, ever in the NBA, uh, such a great score. Uh, and so Spike always gave me, uh, gave me uh, a mess about, you know, guarding Allen. And, you know, this particular time at the end of the season, he was over there trying to get my attention. I was like trying to get to the other side because I didn't want to hear his mouth. And then he finally got me and he was like, you know, I'm doing this movie and I want you to, to audition for it. Uh, when the season's over, and I said, sure, cool. And it just so happened that I lived in Connecticut, so it was only an hour and 45-minute drive from the city for me. So the minute the season ended, uh, I went back to – came back to Connecticut, and then um, I would come into the city and do auditions. Had no clue what I was doing. I, I thought Spike lost his mind because it's like he he clearly didn't know what he was trying to do, and I was like, I'm not an actor, but – what I did know was that I was going to do everything I could, you know, when I got to the NBA, I was like, leave no stone unturned. And Spike told me, he said, I want, I don't want an actor that tries to play basketball. I want a basketball player that we can help get to act. So as we went through the interview, inter, uh, the audition process, you know, I'm, I'm reading with Sally Richardson, uh, Nicole Ari Parker, uh, and then Denzel on the last day and Denzel, he vouched for me and said, Hey, you know, this is the guy, this is the one. And Spike told me, he said, if you're willing to commit, you know, the role is yours. And, and, and there's a misconception. Like people think that Kobe was supposed to be Jesus. Uh, people think that Felipe Lopez was supposed to be Jesus. They think AI was supposed to be Jesus. They think Stefan Marbury was supposed to be Jesus. Mm. Um, I think it would have been appropriate if, Steph was Jesus because we filmed in his neighborhood, like in his projects. Uh, but what Spike wanted was he had, he wanted all of us to read for the part of Jesus. And if you didn't get the part of Jesus, maybe you were going to get the part of somebody else in the movie. Why you see uh, Walter McCarty and, um, and um, uh, uh, what's my other guy's name? Uh, Travis Best as my teammates, because they all read for the same role as well. So, you know, it was up to Spike to decide who was going to be what uh, what position in the movie. And so I was fortunate because he picked me. And one thing that I always remember is I didn't want to be the guy that said, hey, I was supposed to be in that movie. And 
you know, now I can talk about it and how it, it really uh, impacted my life. And, you know, to be able to say, like, when you go through uh, your career that you were able to do this amazing, uh, this amazing movie and, and, and really, um, you know, for really now a cult film, you know, transforming generation of young people in all, through all sports. Now, Ray, you've played in several cities uh, throughout your career. Which one was your favorite stop and why? Seattle was my favorite stop always. It was my favorite stop because it was something, you know, just always majestic about uh, the Pacific Northwest. Now, when you land there, uh, it's always, you know, lush and green. Uh, you come on, come in on the right day, you fly and you see uh, Mount, Mount Rainier or Mount Baker, snow caps. Um, the fan base was great. Just you, some, in some instances, it felt like you were just in another country because it was so far removed, but the people loved basketball. The arena was so uh, intimate. Um, and, you know, everything was, was right there in the city. You know, you, you, you can go to great restaurants and, and, and walk the streets. And, you know, was, everything was in close distance. So it was always, I always had a great time when I went there. Now, did you know they were trying to move out of Seattle when you were up there? Like, was that like talks or did that just happen overnight? Um, I kind of, when I first got there, the owner at the time told me that they had a five-year plan, which I, I don't know in what sports uh, uh, arena you, you have a five-year plan to win a championship. You know, you want to be sex successful. You want to compete. Uh, but they believed in a five-year plan to um, to win a championship. And I, I honestly thought that it was uh, a, a fool's errand because you you get, you got to get lucky. Uh, some things fall into into place where a guy becomes disgruntled, uh, you know, a la Rasheed Wallace from Atlanta to Detroit. Um, certain things happen, you know, over the course of the year that help you get over the hump. You know, you, so a lot of times you see – you know, in Boston, we we uh, brought in Sam Cassell and and, um, uh, and PJ Brown. You know, over the course of the season, and th those guys helped us. You know, get to the next level. So you you can't just predetermine it in the beginning. You have to constantly be working. The players have to be constantly working. The organization has to be constantly working. I didn't think uh, when when I got there, the organization was constantly working. You could tell that they were they were concerned with. Uh, with the dollar, the bottom dollar. They were concerned with uh, uh, limiting payroll. Uh, and just everything was ran. It was almost ran like a, a, a second class or a, a minor league franchise, you know, just from the things that we had to kind of fight and fuss over as, a, um, as, as players of an organization. And so when you started hearing them sell, want to sell, like, you know, one of their main – uh, gripes was um, the lease that they signed with the the city uh, to to pay for Key Arena. You know, it was one of the higher leases in in um, in the NBA. And uh, you know, in hindsight, it's almost like, come on, city, let's let's kind of negotiate this deal so we can get, get this team here. But it was always about that. You know, it was never about you know being a community resource and about you know giving the the fans something. Especially that's why the people, you know, they railed against it once it was getting ready to leave because they're like, you guys, you have an owner that's, you know, 
you know, worth a billion dollars and all these athletes are multimillionaires. So people at the time, they said, well, good riddance because you want more money and you guys are already, you know, clad with millions of dollars. So it was almost, it turned the people off. And uh, I know a lot of them regret not fighting more for it uh, in hindsight, but you, you have to constantly always build. Like you can't get married and then think that your wife is always going to be content because she has a ring on her finger. You got to constantly tell her that you love her and that she's, that you have her back. And you, you more importantly, you have to show your work. I, I don't think that the organization showed their work, uh, not only to its players, but the city as well. Hopefully they get a team to come back there though. That'd, that'd be major because it was a great time up there. They did have a great uh, fan base up there as well. Yeah. Now you talk about, we talked about he got game, of course, your career as a, a professional basketball player too, but you're also an author. How did you find time to, to be an author as well? I mean, you, you make a great use of your time, uh, <laughs> but to be an author, that's, I mean, that takes plenty of time uh, to come up with now, what, two? You had two, two books out? No, just one. Just, just the one, okay. Mm -hmm. I thought it was two, but yeah, just the one. So how did, how did that come about being an author? Who uh, sort of got you leaning in that direction? And tell us a little bit about your book. Well, I've always wanted to write a book. Um, um, you know, as soon as we kind of get through this, I want to write, write, write more. Um, I will encourage you to write a book because you have a story as well. And think about this. So anytime somebody talks about James Posey, who's going to talk about you? It's going to be somebody who covered you in Boston, somebody who covered you in New Orleans, somebody who covered you in Memphis, like all the people who were beat writers, your colleges, they're going to talk about you and they're going to tell your story through their lens and they're going to create who you are based on them. Like, I don't know what the word or term that is, but it's, it's almost, it can be fictional because it's their vantage point. So now look over the course of history and see how much black history is not told. And it's told by our oppressor. You know, we weren't allowed to read. We weren't allowed to, to own homes. We weren't allowed to own land. And we couldn't have insurance. So you, you think all that, that, you know, a lot of our people were, were kind of cut off. You think about how you pass along your, your legacy. I, I, I've spent five years on the, on the board at the Holocaust Memorial. And my term just ended last year. And the one thing that I've learned from, from a lot of Jewish people is that their stories, they tell their stories and they get their stories out. So when you write a book, what happens next? The book turns into a movie. So you look around and you say, well, how many movies are written about what happened? You don't have to have a, a movie like, like Roots or 12 Years a Slave, but how many movies or stories about black people in the struggle over the history of time you know, that showed resiliency, showed great fighters, you know, we don't have that. And as black people, we don't write books. We, we, we can't take that book and turn it into a movie. So we have to write our stories and keep them. One, it's our legacy. So your great, 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 great grandkids can look and hear your words. This is how my, you know, one of my ancestors you know, this is who he was, and this is what they did. We don't have that about our great, great, great granddads or grandmothers. So that was one of the main reasons behind me making sure 
that I wrote a book. And it was a book about me, about what I know to be the truth about me and my life. Because I've, I even had arguments with the people that I, you know, publishers, you know, because they're like, are you sure you happen? Are you sure it happened that way? And I was like, dude, yes, I'm sure. This is exactly how it went down. Well, this person said this. I was like, I don't give a damn about what that person said. This is what I know to be truth. Now, you, oh, when time passes, your memory does get a little foggy. So you do have to sit down and you have to kind of do some reading up just to clarify where your mind was at that time, you know, because these people are writing stuff down. Unlike us, we're not writing as much down. So you have to you have to write a book because you have to be able to give that to your it's 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 like a, a a rite of passage to be able to tell your story how you did it you know what it was like Xavier you know what you were like in high school so nobody can mince your words that they know exactly who you are and what you went through and so that was I think the majority of the book was you know making sure I got everything right timeline wise and I didn't. I think the most important thing about my book that I wanted to to get across to people is that this is not based on my opinion. You know, you know, the difference between if I tell a news story, I said, man, let me tell you about what happened. And, and you know, this is the crazy thing. And I couldn't believe this. And, and I'll give you an example. So the story, I told a story about uh, when we were playing the Bulls, when Yo, uh, Noah, uh, Joachim Noah was, he was young and he was, um, he was sitting next to like AG gave him uh he he kind of backed him backed him turned around a pump fake step side he shot the ball from the baseline and it was a it was a move i seen Kev work on a lot and next time down the floor Joachim Noah said he's like big fella that was that was you know that was a great move how did you how did you I need you to teach me that and he was like KG was like man get off my dick you know like you know how kg is <laughs> right and and i was just sitting there i was in the free throw line and i'm listening to this and i'm like i said he's creating a monster here because this is what he's teaching this young how does how he's teaching this young guy how to be how to respond how to react um and mosquito and he he's he's like learning a behavior that he's being taught and so when i'm writing it this is not my opinion and i was like oh and i was disappointed that kevin said that or i was it was funny that kevin said that no it was just i said this because this is as i was observing what happened so now the reader that reads it they decide how they felt about it when they read it as opposed to me trying to push somebody into a slant or a bias i wanted to tell the story you know, especially with my book, like I'm laying out things that happen. So when you read it, you understand these are the events that unfolded in my life. So now Boston and the big three. Now you hear about, you know, you know, basically how the Miami big three came about, you know, that whole process in itself. How was, how did you uh, feel about the Boston and how did that yeah, really come about? Cause, cause everybody, Everybody got a different story about it, but it wasn't like y'all was calling recruiting each other. So it just sort of happened. That's what people don't understand. Like that just happened. Y'all wasn't recruiting people like yo call, we're gonna go here and play. That's what people don't understand. So what was once once you knew Paul Pierce was there and then you knew KG, what? KG was there. So now it's like, boom. What were you thinking at the time? Was it a chance for you to come there 
to win a championship? Like, what was your mindset then putting that putting that uh, team together? Well, I, I was I was traded on draft day, and I remember where I was. I was in my house, and you know, as we got the number two pick that year for Kevin Durant, I knew that. You know, it was like we, we were going to be good because we had Kevin Durant, myself, and Rashard Lewis. I was like, wow, it's going to be – we're going to be able to do some things here. Uh, they had other intentions. So from from there, you know, that very next – once trade day came or draft day came, um, uh, I looked at – I was sitting as, the, as the, the, the draft opens up. It says potential trade, and it shows all the players that Boston's given up because – Boston accrued a lot of young talent. Gerald Green, Wally Zerbiak, Delonte West, Allen Ray, like all these players. And it's like, they're going to give all those guys up for me? I said, I'm out of here. Like, there's right. no way Seattle's going to turn that down. And I was like, I'm out of here. And so once that happened, because we knew Kev, Kevin was thinking about being uh, about moving on because he had a, a no-trade closet, but he had to okay uh, the, the trade wherever it was too. And so I got a mosquito here that's over here. Um, so he he had to okay the trade, and he was thinking about going to the Lakers uh, and playing with Kobe. And then um, once I was traded to to uh, Boston, then it was it struck him as very interesting to him. He said, "You know what? This is a potentially an opportunity for me." So that uh, that summer, as I was already traded and a part of the Celtics regime now going to summer, Danny and I were talking, he says, I have something else brewing and potentially it's going to involve Kevin Garnett. And so that's when I got on, uh, I got on call with Kevin because he was talking about, you know, um, he, he, I think he had denounced his, his contract and he was already, you know, basically done with Minnesota. So he was now trying to figure out where to go. So he was basically trying to figure out who and how and where. And I was like, we would love you here. You know, it's right. a, it, it's a, it's a great situation. I'm excited, you know, and, and I think it helped him because he knew I was, we knew each other from growing up and he knew that it was um, going to be new for me, for me as well. So, you know, he has some anxiety anxiety early because he was like, man, you know, getting to play in this situation, you know, where we're on the East coast, you know, in a, in a major city, it's, it's something going to be new for all of us. Now, Ray, you hit one of the most memorable shots in NBA history. Um, game six, 2013 finals. Uh, can you walk us through that play? Because a lot of people have different stories about it on both the Spurs and also the heat, different coaches, executives, everything, people who are in the crowd. Uh, for the person who hit that shot, what exactly happened? What was going through your mind when you hit that shot? Well, it just – it seemed like it was spiraling out of control. Uh, we were turning the ball over. Uh, we weren't executing down the stretch. And it just a couple of things kind of fell into our favor with uh, with some of the Spurs missing free throws. Um, we had – fortunately, we had been in a situation where we were down a lot. You know, not a lot, but in, in in many different situations over the course of the season. And the one thing that we knew was nobody wanted to leave LeBron, but in the same token, nobody wanted to leave me either. And then you got D Wade always slashing to the rim, so we kind of knew how to run 
sometimes I would set the screen, sometimes I would slip the screen whenever I would set it, when I, I would uh, engage LeBron on uh, in the pick and rolls because I had a smaller guy on me. So if they switched, it was the wrong, wrong thing to do. If they didn't switch and he tried to stay with them, then I set the screen and then that guy was behind LeBron a little bit. So there was always – we always said that any choice they make is the wrong choice because we knew kind of a t contingency behind it. So we got the shots off that we wanted and we were always, you know, somewhat making them scramble. And I think that was one of the reasons why they took Tim Duncan out of the game at the time. So they could just switch from one through five. Now for me, it was like, I had to figure out a way to just keep moving. And that was my whole goal and the way I played forever. Keep moving your defender turns his head when he looks back you're not in the same place where you were before and that was it you know once the ball went up it was like get back to your spot you know because we knew i knew it was a three-pointer and that's something that in that time of the game is so important to communicate not only from team to player player or from coach to player player to coach player to player bench to guys on the floor you have to know what's going on at all times and what exactly it is that you need because that's what you know, down the stretch, you know, who's in foul trouble. Um, you, you just have to know. And, and by the time game six, over the course of the playoffs, you're, you're drilled on what it is that you need to do and how you need to do it. So um, it's, we're, I'm fortunate to be able to say that every time I look at that shot on highlights, it goes in every time <laughs> because it could be the total opposite. Great. During, uh, during that OA season, at what, what point did you realize that we had a chance to win it all? Like, I know for me, it was once, once we uh, came through this Texas and we beat the Rockets, Dallas, and San Antonio, I, I sat back like, whoa, because you know teams, that's a – you might – you happy if you just get one. But yeah. We was able to, you know, we, hey, we got the trifecta. We knocked all three of them off. And I was looking, I was like, man. We owned some, you know. We had a we had a pretty good season, you know, record. But that that part, that point in the season, right there, I knew we had we had, we had a chance. But how did you? What point did you know that? Well, you you feel that way, and I felt that way as well because you only know that when you go through Texas, you know, the, between three of those teams, like you might get lucky to beat one of, them, but like you know, during that era, is like all three of them were tough to beat. So we just knew where we had come from in years prior. Like, you can't really go to Texas and get, you know, wins and think it's going to be easy. But we went – we fought. Like, Sam hit a game winner. I think it was uh, it was Spurs. He hit yep, the game Spurs. winner. Um, so I, I, I just tried to take it, you know, what was in front of me, you know, one day at a time because I didn't know what winning the championship was like. You did. You know, I didn't know – um, what the playoffs were going to be like for us down the stretch because I played in playoffs, but not to that level where we were expected to go deep. So I just tried not to let my emotions overcome me or, or, or have too many great expectations because there's no way that I know what to expect, you know, coming to the stretch. I, I haven't played in the NBA finals before. I played in the Western, uh, Eastern Conference finals. So it was just like just – you just have to figure out a way to just kind of keep your head down and just keep moving because the minute you think you're good enough, you know, the, the situation will show you that you're, 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 you're not so good. So we win 08, things happen, 
nature of the business, whatever it may be. You get to Miami. Now you you know you team up with uh, LeBron and D Wade. Now, what's the difference between the two teams and and your championship runs? Uh, it, this, the interesting part is that I learned how afraid Miami was of Boston. Like <laughs> these guys, they were scared to death of us. You know, just everything that we run, the things that we that we did on a daily basis. Um, it's, you know, the similar teams because you, you could see the cohesiveness, the, you, you, you could see how the best players communicate and, and make sure that they, they have ownership in the team. And uh, there's a lot of camaraderie. Uh, the, the Miami team was deeper from top to bottom with vets. You know, you can go, I think it's a problem that Spo had because he had so many places that he can go with James Jones to Mike Miller to Shane Battier as shooters, to me, to UD, to Birdman, to, to Jawan Howard. You know, when you look at the roster and you think about it like that, all those guys are capable of playing and, and contributing. And, you know, on our roster in Boston, it was, you know, you once you left the PJ and Sam, like everybody else was Big Baby, who was a first-year player. Um, uh, we had Scalabrini. Scalabrini. Uh, you know, we had T.A., uh, you had Gabe Pruitt. You had a lot of young players. Uh, you had E-House. Uh, you had a lot of younger players that hadn't really been on the stage. But in, in Miami, it was it was, it was was a much deeper uh, bench. And you know when you get to a playoff situation, you're only playing seven to eight players anyway. Nice. Now, at the end of your Miami tenure, there was always rumors and different reports saying that you may come back and play for a different team or you may go to Cleveland or go to Golden State. What was the what was that like, and was that ever any truth to that, or was it just all just regular random talk like it usually is? Well, I, I have to say that I was it, it really turned me off because you know I had certain prognosticators on TV saying that I was signing the deal with Cleveland, so actually my house in Miami was broken into for that reason because people thought I was in Cleveland. Um, I had a guy on TV saying that sources close to me were saying that I I was. Within a day of signing a contract with Cleveland, I was like, I haven't spoke to anybody about signing the deal with Cleveland. Um, and I just, you know, from my position, I thought to myself, like, who is going to use me? Um, at this point, I've won a championship already. I'm not chasing a championship. So in that situation, somebody needs me, and how are you going to make it worth my while? So at this point, for me, it was strictly playing time and money. If you can make both things work, you know, where I can play and you're going to make it worth my while to get off the couch, then I would look at it. But other than that, I wasn't going to kind of bend over backwards because I didn't think I would leave my family in Miami either. So it would require them to, to, to move with me. So nothing ever materialized that, that came close to making those things, uh, making those things work. You know, a lot been going on, you know, this year has been crazy uh, with the, you know, the pandemic going on and also with the social injustice that's been going on. Uh, what are your thoughts and feelings about that? Man, I have a lot. I know uh, you got a lot. I know you got a yeah. lot. <laughs> I know you got a lot. I was worried about you. I see your little, your little IG and uh, I know you had a little moment over there too, sitting in your car, but, you know, uh, what's on your mind? So, 
uh, it, it, when you think about one, you think about politics, you know, it's, it's frustrating, you know, when you think about, you know, myself, think about you, uh, think about what you've done and, in, in your career, think about how much money you've paid in taxes. Think about all the charity you've done, you know, the the philanthropy that you've created. Uh, whether people want to see it or not, we're more than just athletes, more than just basketball players. Uh, we have children. Um, you know, we have causes that, that we support a lot more than most people understand or want to give us credit for. So, it's always disheartening when people tell us to shut up and dribble because we do have perspective. And one thing that I try to do is gain it from many different angles. I've grown up all around the world, so I do have a different perspective on a lot of things. And the one thing I've always prided myself on is trying to see it from another person's perspective. Uh, where you lose me is when, if you demean somebody, you degrade somebody, you bully somebody, or you have no integrity. You know, that's kind of what we're dealing with now, you know, with, uh, with Trump. Like he, he has no, no integrity. He has, he's a bully and he's the guy that's supposed to divide, uh, unite people and not divide them. So for anybody that stands by him and agrees with him, it bothers me because how do you, how do you agree with somebody that does something against people? We're supposed to be four. We're supposed to build bridges and not walls. And so that's what I've watched for the last four years. And I've watched people support him and not call him out against his egregious behavior. When when Obama wore tan suit, you know, they were ready to say that he should be impeached. Uh, you know, when Obama didn't wear a suit jacket, they said he should be impeached. Uh, people, these people called Hillary a liar and Trump has lied thousands of times. Um, it, it, the list goes on. And so I see it and I hear it every single day and it, and it, and it truly bothers me. And so now with. You talk about all those things. Now you need to prove to me that you're a real leader. And I think with all those things, you can't lead somebody when you have no integrity. So now as we're going through this social unrest in this country, you don't hear his voice. You know, you're supposed to be a consoler in chief. You're supposed to be somebody who brings people together and, and heals the nation, but you can't do that. You only speak for people who support you, white supremacists, uh, uh, neo-Nazis, uh, uh, just these right-wing uh, um, extremists and you you're just pandering to them all the time and so there's so much unrest in this country that we need to be able to sit down with people that listen you know i don't want you, you you're not going to agree with everything that i agree with but don't tell me what i'm supposed to feel don't tell me as a black man that there's no racism in this country and you're not black uh don't tell me that you know there's no police brutality and that black people should just uh, not resist. We've seen black people not resist and still get killed. You know, look at the history of this country. You know, the the hate and the violence that has been rendered against black people for not doing anything, for whistling at someone, Emmett Till, you know, for sitting in your own living room, uh, 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 Botham Jean, like the list goes on and there's a name for almost everything, you know, that where we weren't resisting, we were just living. You know, being called on, called the cops on so many times. And, and I think it's, it's so disheartening because so many people explain the behaviors of these cops. You know, we're not ever saying that cops are bad or we don't need cops. We're just saying we need more. You know, we need other opportunities. We need, you know, 
we're, we're saying the Black Lives Matter, and then the, the immediate argument is, well, what about all the black on black killing in, in Chicago? Well, you look at every other city, inner city or, or hood, white people kill white people. You kill people where you live. I, I don't condone killing, but nine times out of 10, if you kill somebody, that person, you know, they're uh, investigated, found, and then sent to jail. Like right now, we're talking about police brutality where cops are killing, shooting young black men and women and aren't being uh, sent to jail for. You know, they they have qualified immunity. Um, it, it's like so many people get mad over the protests, but they're not getting mad at the oppression. So if you're not getting mad at the oppression that 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 about the protests, that's why people are protesting, then you want to silence and control. You're not about peace and justice. Because that's the thing that people should be concerned with is how do people get justice and how do we have peace in this country? Listen to what we're saying. We, we want equality and we want to stop the oppression. We want everybody to have the same. And the problem with the same is when privilege is asked for equality, to them it feels like oppression. And if we can, if we can figure out a way to, we're fighting as much as we can. And we gotta talk about it, it's uncomfortable. Uh, every time on, on, on my social media, you know, a white person may come on and say, why do I keep talking about race? And I said, well, this is what we live every day. I can't remove my skin color. You know, racism is flashed or splashed in my face every single day by some form or fashion or another. I'm sure that's the same for you. So you can't tell me what my experiences are, or what I'm feeling. So if I talk about it, it's not because I'm trying to throw it in your face. I'm trying to get you to understand it's real and we got to figure out a way how to eradicate it. And you as a white person, brown person, yellow person, just say, let me understand more. Let me learn more as opposed to sit there and try to argue me and say what I'm feeling is wrong. Now, Ray, what changes would you like to see happen, uh, whether it's police reform or uh, better education in certain areas, uh, better transportation in certain areas? What changes or what things would you like to see change or um, anything new would you like to see come about? So it's important. This is the one thing that we talk about in this country. We say how America is the greatest country in the world. Well, Pose, you know how we look at the one thing that, that Tibbs used to pride himself on is defensive field goal percentages. So if we were 37, 38%. We knew we were top two, three in the league. And that was, where we needed to stay that that was a linchpin to our defense and that's where we knew we were good the numbers don't lie so at the end of the day to to stop all these issues we we have to look at where our numbers lie where do we where do we stand in obesity around the world what number do we rank where do we rank in homelessness where do we rank in in jobs where do we rank in crime and, and people in prison, like, where do we, where do we rank in, in these categories? And that should tell us where we stand and what we need to work on. I, I, I believe all these things, when you talk about teen pregnancy, homelessness, jobs, healthcare, all those things, I think if you put, it, if you put those things in, on a graph and in the middle of that, that circle or of that graph or that picture, uh, the thing that I think helps cure all those problems is uh, is uh, education. 
our government does not spend enough money on education. So when, when we talk about Black Lives Matter, look at Flint, the, the school systems in Flint, and how we don't have proper uh, running water. And that's what you're, you're poisoning those children. I'm sure there's other communities, black and brown communities all across America that are dealing with the same issues, uh, lack of textbooks, desks, uh, 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 lunch programs, like all those things. So what I think and what I would love to see happen, don't just tell me hashtag BLM. I want to start seeing them fund, send money into these inner city schools, into, any, in, into black neighborhoods where uh, job opportunities start to increase and you start to see businesses being built where you're giving people opportunities because that is one of the reasons why you see black people in in Chicago that are killing each other because there's no opportunity. You know, you join a gang because there's no opportunity. You figure out a way to, to, to take care of your family. And I don't excuse any of that behavior. You know, if you kill somebody, you deserve to go to jail. But how do we stop that or cut that off and, and, and prevent those deaths from happening? You give them opportunities to do things young, get them off the streets, have them after school programs in the summers, you know, send them to other cities, other countries for, 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 uh, for summer jobs. Like I go to Martha's Vineyard once a summer and a lot of the kids that work the restaurants and the stores and the, and the, the beaches there, they come from Europe. Think about that. They come from Europe on uh, a loan program where they have job a, a, a job tunnel that allows them to travel across the world to get a job in another country. Why do we not do that for our own children in our own inner cities? So stuff like that is things that we have to do to eradicate, you know, the, the crime that happens, but we got to put money into the education. Like we're building a wall to keep people out, but with the people we have inside this country, we're not spending any money on them. Now, how do you have the conversation with your children regarding what's going on? These are difficult conversations, and they may not know everything that's going on in great detail. How do you have those conversations with them? Oh, I just tell them exactly like it is. I don't try to sugarcoat it or nickname it. We watch it, see it on the news. We talk about it. Don't run through the neighborhood with a hood on. Uh, be respectful in the car. It, yeah, I don't care how, how a cop demeans you or, or makes you feel lower or lesser than you need to come home alive. You need to be safe. So just take his badge number and we can live to see another day, but do whatever you need to do, you know, uh, to, to survive. And, you know, a lot of that is, you know, staying busy, uh, making sure that you're always about your business, getting to and from and don't linger. Uh, don't uh, loiter, you know, loitering, you know, once, once, uh, the, the 13th Amendment was passed when they outlawed, outlawed slavery. In the 13th Amendment, it said, except for, is one of the phrases in, in the 13th Amendment, you know, that says except for. So slavery was outlawed, and then it said slavery would be outlawed except for. So that meant if you committed a crime or um, anything egregious in this country, then you could then be rendered a slave again, meaning you would be thrown into a prison system where they could demand free labor from you. You become a slave all over again. So what they did was they would create different laws that we were actually, if you broke them or they said you broke them, then they can arrest you. And a lot of black men were arrested for loitering, meaning you're just standing around 
not doing anything and they arrested you. And, you know, in, in many cases, guys went to jail for a long time. You look at the chain gangs down in the South, like that's how roads and highways were being built. You didn't do anything but just sitting around. They put a bogus charge on you and now you're in jail forever. So we had to always keep ourselves busy. We have to always make sure when we're going somewhere, you, you go from A to B and don't take a shortcut or don't, uh, uh, take a circuitous route where you, you're going to see some friends because anything can happen. You know, anything can happen anyway, anyhow. But I just make sure that my kids, are, you know, they move through this world with intention and purpose and, you know, always keep their head on the swivel. Something that only us black men have to teach our young black children, uh, our young black men. Man, Ray, pre appreciate you coming on, taking the time. Um, I'd like to end the show with a segment called Free Game. What free game can you give the people out here? Now, it, it could be whatever you want, but it's free game for everybody that's gonna see this. Uh, man, everything they got is free up to this point. Uh, it was, we, we, <laughs> we exchanged you know, a lot of great information, uh, and I, I think I could talk on, uh, go on for days uh, about so much, but I think I, I, I'll say this. Everything in life is complicated, yet it's simple. So making a 10 MBA is complicated, but it's simple. It requires work. Everything that you do in life, it requires help. But at the same token, everything you do in life, you have to do for yourself. So if you understand the dichotomy between needing help and doing what you need to do for yourself, you have, at any given moment in your life, you have to cross that th threshold. Like everybody got you to where you need to be so you can be successful, got you to practice, got tennis shoes on your feet. But now you get to the gym, you got to put the work in. And we can't look for handouts. We got to look for somebody to help us get to where we need to go, but we got to do the work. So when I say life is complicated, once you learn how to, to, to put yourself in that situation, now you have to do the work and you can't have excuses. You can't wait for somebody to do something for you. You have to go get it. And if you do that, you'll always, always, uh, uh, determine your own future, but you you can never forget the people that helped you get there. There y'all have it. Some more free game from Ray Allen right here, man. Brother, I, I appreciate you always. Uh, thanks for the chip again in 08. Thanks for the, Likewise. You know, uh, that, that extra oomph and push I needed during that 08, but then also just being a good brother and a good friend, man. I appreciate yeah. you. Yeah, thank you for having me on, Paul. Scott, I appreciate you guys. Uh, great time. Uh, just, you know, these types of conversations help not only us as we're talking about, obviously, but the people around that will watch this and, and, and allow the things that we say to seep into their soul and kind of understand we are more than just basketball players. And, 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 and it's important that people understand that, and that we, the next act of our lives, we're going to do something even greater than just winning a basketball game, but, you know, changing people's lives for the better. Yo, this is James Posey. Thanks for checking out Posecast, brought to you by BasketballNews.com. You can check out Posecast every Thursday on all your listening platforms. Presenting sponsor of the Posecast is GreenSupply.com. With everything going on in the world, it is more important than ever to stay safe. At GreenSupply.com, you can purchase masks, hand sanitizer, and other important health and wellness products, all in stock with same-day shipping. Best of all, listeners can get 10% off their order when using the promo code POSI at checkout. That's 
P-O-S-E-Y, for 10% off your order of KN95 or cloth mask, hand sanitizer, or other supplies like forehead thermometers and UV boxes. Visit greensupply.com. That's greensupply.com today.